Hi and welcome to Research in Focus, a podcast exploring the work of La Trobe researchers. I'm Laurie Zine, Director of La Trobe's Transforming Human Society Research Focus Area. Good to have you listening. We're going to climb a few mountains now. The Himalayan mountain range sits on the border of India and China, the world's two most populated nations, and it also travels through Pakistan, Nepal and Bhutan. These mountains are a key geopolitical and environmental landscape with implications for the wider Asia area. Ruth Gamble is a David Myers Research Fellow in the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University, and Ruth's research focuses on the environmental history of the Tibetan Plateau. Ruth, welcome to Research in Focus. Good to be here. So let's climb those mountains. Uh, for people who are geographically challenged, <laughs> just tell us a bit more about what, what the Tibetan Plateau actually is. I mean, I think people know where India is and where China is, but yeah. that's a big space that uh, the, the Plateau covers, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's kind of like the hub of all of Asia or all, all of the Asia that we relate to anyway. So basically... Uh, because I'm a historian, I can give you a history of how it happened. So India, over millions of years, slid up into Asia, smashed into what is China and pushed up a big chunk of Asia um, a, a couple of kilometres above sea level. And uh, it's been sitting it, it, from that area. Um, we have most of the rivers descend into everywhere from Pakistan through South Asia, Southeast Asia and East Asia. So uh, it is basically an area in Central Asia, above South Asia, east of east, no, west of East Asia, north of South Asia, um, that sits high above the rest of the continent. Yeah. Can Does I, that make sense? Yeah. Can I ask another? <laughs> can I ask an altitude question? Yeah. How high up is the plateau itself? It, it, it kind of. Uh, it changes. Uh, so yeah, I, I have this image in my head of it looking a bit like a, your hand, like a knuckle. So um, on the eastern side of the plateau, it's a bit lower and it's between about uh, 3,000 and 3,500 metres. That's the low bit. Uh, and then as you go up um, towards western Tibet, up in towards the area where it joins with Pakistan, the plateau um, becomes part of Pakistan. It gets up to about 4,500 uh, to 5,000 metres. It goes up further. And then that descent. Twice the height of Mount Kosciuszko. Yeah, Kosciuszko is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you have to walk up it, but that's another yeah, yeah. story. But we're talking about an area that geographically is just incredibly different to any landscape we're familiar with in Australia because it's also – Glaciated or a large part of it is? Large parts of it are glaciated. Okay. I don't know if it's not completely different to Australia. You you get this sense of – because I just got back last week from travelling all around the plateau and there's lots of bits of it that remind me of travelling between um, Brisbane and Melbourne on the bus when I was a teenager to go to school, right? There's like big empty spaces with not much in it that are really boring. But there's right? no big merino or big pineapple anywhere. No. There's big oh, – there are big yak. This is like being a, like a, a local government initiative that almost every town that you go into on the Tibetan Plateau has a golden yak yeah. or a golden singing person or some big thing right at the entrance to it. And speaking of big <laughs> things, yeah. there is a big statue that's been built by the Indians. That's right at the base of the river, of oh, the okay. mountains, though. That's not quite in I the, noticed you wrote about that. Yeah, Alex and I had, a, had fun. Well... Depressing fun? Can you have depressing fun? Uh, writing about something that's depressing but going, uh, trying to cheer each other up, writing about this statue that Modi's built. That's an, it's a dam at the base of the mountains. Right. Um, yeah, he's built uh, – the president of India has inaugurated and helped fund and set up a massive statue for – yeah, at the, at a, next to a dam that overlooks a dam. 
Um, yeah. A really controversial dam. Why? Good question. <laughs> I think it's basically part of a bigger project on behalf of the Indian government to reorientate uh, uh, Indian nationalism and Indian history around like development and okay. the people that were pro-development. And they've made, a, they've made a massive statue of India's first deputy prime minister. Right, because they don't like Nehru, who is the prime minister. So they've done his de- done a statue of his deputy that's massive, that is supposed to unite India and uh, um, be a kind of a clarion, a symbol of sorry, I should say, a symbol of uh, development for the whole country. Yeah. It's massive, twice the size of the Statue of Liberty, and slightly ridiculous. When you talk about the Tibetan Plateau, just b- before we leave geography behind, mm. which we will, I promise, but <laughs> um, are we talking about air, a land that's just in Tibet itself or is it broader? No, so, I mean, this is part of the, the thing that I've been trying to do in my research and looking at it in a different way. Um, it's it's it, it doesn't the, – the idea of what Tibet is is kind of historically and um, linguistically problematic. Uh, it's a, it, it, the area – like – the, the the plateau itself uh, crosses between a few nation states at the moment. It's in it's in Pakistan, it's in India, it's in Nepal, it's in Bhutan, the top of Bhutan, um, and and in the People's Republic of China, right? Um, but uh, it's. It's a kind of, I mean, there is a lot of cohesion because of the altitude between the different groups in the area, but there, there's a lot of borders cutting through it as well. And so it's like a, um, yeah, it's a, and they're relatively new borders. Uh, in the last um, 100 years or so, they've developed all these borders around the area. Mm. Well, before we talk about your research, which mm. goes into a lot of these themes, mm-hmm. tell us how you first became interested <laughs> Tibet, because you're a journalism student and I was a journalism worked as a journalist. student, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I was well, I was really interested in beat poets as a teenager, and they were always going on about Tibet and mountains and Zen Buddhism and things. So I started getting interested in Eastern philosophy and uh, and um, uh, and mountains. And when I was a second year student at RMIT Journalism, I won a tiny award from Women in Film and Television and my friend and I bought a camera and deferred for a year. I had to taxi drive to get the rest of the money to go Uh, and we went over to um, uh, Tibet and snuck in with a camera trying to make a documentary about Tibet, which didn't really work because our camera was rubbish and we dropped it. Um, but, but we managed to get some uh, radio pieces off it uh, in the end. And, um, yeah, it was really it, – it was really – I became really fascinated with the area, like the, the culture and the tradition and, and the environment. I didn't kind of click. The environment stuff was interesting because I'd wanted to be a marine biologist growing up, but I kind of thought I can't do math, so I can't be involved in anything environmental. And so I, I kind of took it in – um, osmotically or by osmosis as opposed to being uh, more focused on it at that point. So, yeah, but it was really blew my mind. It was so different. It was so – in some ways it was so different. In some ways it was kind of the parts of Australia that had really resonated with me were in full force there. So I I was really drawn to the place. And then, yeah. How did that lead to an academic career, (laughs) specialising in this region? So – I, I tried to be a journalist, but I was bad at it. Um, I have no new sense and I don't have the kind of social skills required to walk up to people and demand they talk to you. So um, I got a job, but I did get a job working for American television in Japan at the 
in 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 the snow working at the Winter Olympics. And then um, from there, I ran. That was my first and probably only proper job. And then I um, from there, I decided I was going to go snowboarding. So I went snowboarding for two years, and I ended up in the Himalayas. And snowboarding in the Himalayas is bad. Um, the snow is not good for snowboarding. It's old or uneven. Um, but then I got into this uh, program that was to train to be a Tibetan interpreter, right? So I lived in the Himalayas for two and a half years working. All right, so you skipped, a, <laughs> you, you skipped something, right? Yeah. How did you learn the language? So I went, so I went there to um, learn the language and become an interpreter. So I, I, I got into this program, went to live in the Himalayas, tried to go snowboarding there. It didn't work. So I, I learned the language in a... In a um, translation program that was set up by uh, meditation centers so that you would learn how to be a translator for monks. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it makes sense. But it <laughs> sounds like a huge undertaking. Yeah, it was pretty Did big. you speak any other foreign languages no. at the time? No. I grew up in Queensland. We didn't have a <laughs> – I spoke Queenslandish. Um, there, there was no chance to, to learn any other languages when I was growing up and um, – yeah, so I thought, um, I didn't know, I was a bad journalist, I had to do something. So I decided to become an interpreter and worked really hard um, trying to learn the language in a few years. What kind of fluency did you have? Um, do I have or did I have? Did you have? Did I have? When I started, I knew nothing. By the end of a few years of like Tibetan studies boot camp, I could interpret for monks. And then I worked as an interpreter in Adelaide while doing another degree in Asian studies. So you really became immersed after your first visit there. That I one, think, yeah. I mean, and it was slowly, it kind of transformative. In some ways, it was transformative. It was it kind of grew on me as well, and it mm. was. Uh, I think there was this weird combination of getting really into snowboarding. So I was really into mountains. Like uh, I went snowboarding in Europe and New Zealand and Japan and all these places. So it was kind of a mountain thing as well as a cultural thing. The, the two things came together. Yeah, and and then I got into languages as well, which is I loved. I love doing languages. I didn't – I had no background, no – like, honestly, no cultural uh, appreciation of languages because I'm Australian. But um, <laughs> but then I got really into it and uh, uh, and that was a big part of it as well for me. Yeah. yeah. So early in your academic career then, mm-hmm. all these interests are sort of channeled into writing a history of the development of the reincarnation system. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, yes. How, I mean, did you, that's what, how did you get your head around all that? So um, I did this other – I did honours uh, year in – I got into the honours program at ANU after doing another degree where I majored in Hindi. Um, and uh, they said that they'd give us a scholarship to – if you want a scholarship to do a, um, a, a PhD, you could just study languages and literature and everything for three years, and I thought that was a pretty good gig. Um, and then <laughs> I got into – uh, the, the project that I was working on was looking at the um, all the collected writings of a person who was the first um, person recognised as a child uh, as a reincarnate uh, guru. And uh, in researching his work, I found all of these. I found his biographies and all of these materials that showed how the pro- the process got set up. And so I used that to to write a book. But then my major discovery was that this was really linked to the region's sacred geography. So I got really into studying sacred geography and looking, learning about all the different mountains and rivers and everything in the region and how people understood them. Um, and then from that, I got interested in environmental history. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting pathway. It's into not an normal. Academic career, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no through line. <laughs> so, so in terms of the work you do now, mm. there's a focus 
on the environmental issues yeah. that this region faces. Yeah. Um, and I've read in your work that, you know, these, although there's a lot of political uh, scuffles in the area, that the environmental challenges are perhaps even more overwhelming. They're massive. They're, they're, they're um, hard to get your head around. The Tibetans have an expression, send me cup. My mind doesn't cover it. And that's what I keep thinking with this. I can't get my head around uh, what's going on in this area. Yeah, it's a, um, and it's interesting having that shift between the looking at the place in terms of its sacred geography, so like from inside, and then learning science. More, I've been trying to teach myself science and had some nice people help me, and then starting to look at it from a more external perspective of what's going on and trying to come at the problem from those both those angles. Um, it, it, and, and it's almost as if the environmental problems more recently, because my original work was looking at hundreds of years ago and how things developed, but the environmental problems and changes that are occurring in the Himalaya now are happening so fast and they have such uh, massive implications that it's almost like a vortex that keeps dragging you in. That Even if you want to look at other things, this is so pressing. Is it development, to- population, climate change? Tick, 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 all of the above. Um, and development, population, climate change, but also uh, competing interests. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a big pro- – it's a really uh, big source because it's ahead of all of these rivers. Uh, that Anything that happens there has implications not just for the Tibetan Plateau but for half the world's population that lives in the greater Himalayan watershed. Yeah. What are the political challenges in dealing with these issues? Political challenges. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I was saying that that place kind of like rose up when the two continents smashed yeah. into itself, right? So then these, uh, it was kind of a space of a space between. Like you said, people don't get the idea that it was a space between China and India. So it was hard, it's hard to live there, and the and the, the way that people lived there um, a, was really fluid in order to be able to respond to the circumstances of the environment there. But then in the last hundred years, what you've had is different with the solidification of nation states as like people that the, the boundaries um, that that are that pe- all of the pretty much all the nation states have don't agree right so it, it was so fluid that you wouldn't say this is that that has historically been the border between uh, say China and India or India and even China and Tibet or India and Tibet there were no borders there were just mountains Right, and so then when you have to define a border, then everyone's been scuffling over those borders for the last eight, seventy years. China and India have been to war over it. Pakistan and, and uh, India have been to war over it. They're still like literally, there's soldiers punching on every few months mm. on the border regions in between China and Tibet and, and um, uh, sorry, China and uh, India and India and Pakistan. So uh, if, they, if people can't agree on the basic borders and who is in charge of what. It means that no one's actually taking uh, uh, care of the whole area and uh, that uh, it, it, there's this idea that the, um, the environment ends at my border or the bit that, I wanna, that, that I'm not in charge of. And so people are kind of hoarding or taking water or other resources uh, into the nation states and ignoring the whole ecosystem of the place. What role has China played in terms of its, its expansion into that region of roads and infrastructure, and I guess the the political issues around the status of the people of Tibet. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, so, so China has this idea that the Chinese national discourse is that Tibet has always been part of China, loosely defined. So, but it, but it's kind of like they had to come up with an, a more a concrete idea of what China was after World War Two, and then had all the nation states forming. Um, so. They really couldn't do that much 
on the plateau until the last 30 years because they didn't have the technology. Um, but in the last 30 years, China, India, uh, and to a lesser extent, Bhutan and, and Pakistan and Nepal have all been uh, pursuing development in the region, uh, development usually for the benefit of the large population centres, not on the plateau rather than uh, the plateau itself. And, um, yeah, there's oh, – there, there's it's kind of um, – it both extractive, there's like all these extractive industries like hydropower and mining and uh, um, even um, like cultural extraction. Like it, uh, there's a it's massive tourism industry on both sides of the border because both lowland Chinese and lowland Indians have this idea of going somewhere, they can go somewhere exotic and still be within their own country. Mm. Um, so all of these these pressures are being put onto the the plateau, which is a really fragile ecosystem. So, yeah. Roads, trains, dams, uh, aeroplanes, uh, they're rebuilding most of the villages on the plateau. So every village you go to, they say, this is old, blah, 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 this is new. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's like the whole place is a construction site. What difference can research make to the way these problems are addressed and, uh, and the kind of outcomes for the people who live there that might make their own futures a bit more sustainable? I'm I'm not sure, <laughs> uh, but it's worth a try because uh, no, uh, there's not a, a lot else happening. Um, I, th- I think like what I can see my job is is trying to put the stories together. Um, so uh, what I'm looking at is like, we're dealing with both sides of the border, trying to look at it in terms of its ecological systems uh, and as opposed to its, the nation states and, and how they're integrated and um, kind of pointing out that uh, trying to f- tell a story about an ecosystem as opposed to a nation state, all right? So and a massive ecosystem at that. Um, and I think that uh, hopefully uh, that even getting that idea out there that we can start thinking of these places as uh, as a more holistically uh, and try and respond to them in that way because that's the way that they function um, maybe. Um, helpful, <laughs> and uh, the I guess that's something that you can do that that, that the humanities, uh, environmental humanities, should do is to try and tell these stories in a different way, so the way mm. that they're usually told uh, politically. Do you think Australians could be more engaged with it as a region? The Himalaya. Yeah. I think they're going to have to be. Um, uh, there's a we're basically a small. Like population-wise, we're a small nation at the edge of this massive, uh, massive ecosystem. We're talking about like a, a river system that's that that's half the world's population right on our doorstep. And if we don't pay attention to what's happening there, that's clearly going to have uh, impacts on us in a whole bunch of different ways. I, I mean, the weather systems that, that stretch all the way down here are related to. Uh, the Himalayas in very complicated ways I don't quite understand. And uh, there's also like uh, large population movements between the two different uh, spaces. So there's a lot of people, a lot of migrants to Australia come from that region and Australians spend a lot of time and do increasing amount of business with uh, the the, the basin. So, you know, most of our products in, in our houses were built or were constructed using water from the Himalayas. So it's so we it's, have to be. It's it's not something that the world can say. This is a region that doesn't affect me. And, no, you know. the, I mean this is a weird thing too because it, it's like switching the way you you think about things from a political or a political focus to an environmental focus. Then this region ceases to be a periphery and becomes a centre. Yeah. yeah. What's the a academic 
global community like when it comes to Tibet and the sort of themes that you're looking at? I know you've spent time studying in Munich. Yeah. And yeah, Yale. And yeah. So uh, a lot of people are interested in this. Yeah, they and, are. And, there are. and it seems like very interdisciplinary work. It's very interdisciplinary and I actually have to deal with multiple languages and everything which makes my brain hurt. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, there's so many multiplicities to it uh, that it, that it can get really complicated. Uh, but the responses I've had, I've and also I work with people in China and India as well. Um, the responses I've had are really positive um, and kind of like, oh, well, I'm glad you're doing it because I don't want to. Or I'm glad you're doing it because I can't. And so I've gotten a lot of support uh, from different areas and and uh, a lot of. Uh, um, Invitations and things like that. I have invitations and thing to, to contribute to things because uh, it's it's hard to do it. So no one's really, not many people are doing it. Yeah, um, I just want you to think about that first time you went there again, and yeah. think about the fact you were saying you were just there recently. Yeah. Um, is it different now going back there from when you first visited? <sighs> um, yeah. Sorry, that was a depressing sigh. Um, <laughs> it's. It's different and I don't want to be it's, – it's complicated, right? So it's different. Some things are better, right? So like, I think that there's a tendency when you go places and you see such profound environmental change to be depressed by just the environmental change and not think about the people who live there and the way that their lives improve. Like I have one of my best mates is a woman who grew up in near the border between um, – the present border between China and Tibet – and uh, I still remember one time she's like, next time you come back from Australia, can you bring me a hand blender? You know, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I was like, why? And she goes, oh, it means I can sleep in an extra half an hour. And, and it, it, it just because she'd been making the tea, the breakfast tea, the Tibetans drink butter tea, and she'd been pressing it by hand and it took her half an hour. And by me bringing this electrical thing and she got to sleep in half an hour. Right. So there's like these little things that you can see. And in particular, I'd say for women, that there's lots of little things that are improving their lives in, a, in profound ways. It's just that there seems to be this kind of disconnect between uh, the way that these improvements and these developments are happening and uh, communities and cultures and languages and traditions. Right. So the, the, because it's happening at these massive nation state levels, they're being presented as being um, uh, like big uh, universal projects that don't allow for personal um, for individual communities to find their own way so there's there's changes there's massive changes like the 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 river i just went along there's a they're building a high speed railway line a series of dams a freeway and uh like rebuilding all the um uh, all of the villages along the river and then actually digging up the river to use the sand to make the concrete to make all of these wow. things. So it's like the entire river is a construction site. And when I first went along this area, we, we hitchhiked in, my friend and I. <laughs> Don't do that, boys and girls. Anyway, and <laughs> and, uh, and it took us ages and, and days to uh, go along these tracks along the river and now it's like a freeway with a high-speed train coming. Just finally then, mm. do you still love the mountains? Yes, yes, yes. I don't know why, how I ended up loving the mountains coming from one of the world's flattest continents, but yes. <laughs> Great. Ruth Gamble, it's been fantastic talking to you. Good luck with everything in the future and for all your future visits, of course, to that particular region. Research in Focus is a La Trobe University podcast produced by Laurie Zion and Lauren Gorn. Support for this podcast comes from La Trobe University's Transforming Human Societies Research Focus Area. This podcast is edited by Max Robbins and Margaret Purdom and hosted by Upstart. 
Our music is Bright Future by Silent Partner.